Good evening to you. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And so if you're visiting with us tonight, you say, why in the world would a guy do a Bible study on Sunday night beginning in Deuteronomy 29? Well, that's the reason why. Here Moses, as he begins in, in what we're reading here in Deuteronomy chapter 29, he begins the fourth of five sermons that he delivered to the children of Israel on the east side of the Jordan, the land of Moab, as we'll see here in verse 1 in just a moment. And just before they go in to conquer the land, and all five sermons have the same theme, and the theme is obedience. And uh, when you really think about it, and uh, you think about, boy, what would I say if I was going to leave the scene to people that I care about and people that I love, and to say, you know, what series of things could I speak to them to just assure that as I would go on to heaven, or as Moses would be, in his case, gathered to his fathers, to know that, wow, if you just do this one thing, things are going to work out okay for you. And that would be the theme of obedience. So much hinges upon the choices that we make in life. And not only so much hinges in this life based upon our decision making, but of course uh, each person makes a decision related to their eternity in this life. And uh, that's the most important decision that a person will ever make. Decisions, it's impossible to overstate how important uh, they are. So here you, you think, Moses, how... I mean, five sermons on the theme of obedience. How much can you say about obedience? He's not above repeating himself. I mean, he just keeps saying some of the th same things over and over again, which tells me we need to hear it that often. And then he hits this theme of obedience from every angle that you can hit it so that nobody could walk away and say, hey, how come nobody told us about that? You know, they would know everything uh, about it. And so, beautiful theme of obedience and picking up in verse 1. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, modern-day Jordan there, east side of the... Jordan River, opposite Jericho, where they're encamped before the conquest of the land, besides the covenant that he made with them in Horeb. So part of his repetition of the law and his uh, calling them to obedience was the first generation had disobeyed God's law. They had perished in the wilderness. And uh, so he's repeating this law to them because it's a second generation and he wanted to make sure that they heard it. And now he calls them not only to hear it and to know it, but to make a commitment now to obey God's word. Now Moses called all Israel, and he said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all of his servants, and to all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs, and these great wonders. And so Moses begins now to give the children of Israel a review of their history and the point of this review of their history isn't that they didn't know their history but he's making sure that they understood the lesson of their history we all know our history in life 
But what's the lesson that's attached to it? And the point that Moses is making in this part of his sermon is that as he reviews that history is that obedience has always brought God's blessing. All the way back from the time of, of Pharaoh and the time of Egypt and the deliverance out of Egypt. He said, yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and hear, ears to hear to this very day. One of the things that happened with that first generation of the children of Israel that came out of, out of Egypt, later died in the wilderness, is that they saw all of the miracles. They experienced all the miracles in their life. But they never realized that those miracles were supposed to translate into something in their life. They were given as in, intending that it would, uh, that they would, uh, it would deepen their understanding of God, that it would deepen their appreciation for God. So they saw all these miracles, they saw the ten great plagues that came on Egypt that got them delivered and all the things that happened and, uh, you know, and uh, subsequent to that, the parting of the Red Sea, all of these uh, different things, and they just viewed them as a miracle. They never looked at the miracle and translated it into something between them and God to look at the parting of the Red Sea and say, that's my God. That's the power of the God that I pray to related to the miracle that I need in my life tonight. That's the God that has been so faithful in, in my past to do these things, to, to pull out whatever He's got to do to bring me into this life with God. They, they, ju they look back on it and they didn't see the faithfulness of God and then to say, look how faithful God has been to us. What He's been to us, He's been to us because that's who and what He is and He'll always be that to us. To them, it was just a miracle. So when God would do some miracle and, and there would be uh, food supplied to them, they'd go to their tents at the end of, you know, stuffing themselves and they'd lay down. And to them, all it was is, great, we got to go to bed stuffed. They never translated it into... What, what does this tell me about God? What was the real intent behind the physical thing that God did? What's He trying to do in my spirit? What's He trying to do in my relationship with God? And so they never ever took it beyond that. So they saw all of these miracles and it never deepened their walk with God or deepened their understanding of God. And the reason it, that it, it was that way for them, because they didn't uh, desire to perceive these spiritual lessons that were uh, behind all of these miracles and what they were intended to communicate uh, the, uh, to them about God. And uh, because they had no desire to translate it uh, into, you know, the full intent of it to spiritually for them, God was unable to reveal it to them because they had no interest in having anything greater revealed than, wow, wasn't that quite a miracle we saw today? Now, New Testament application, when we come uh, there into the ministry of Jesus, I think about how often the Holy Spirit said much of the same thing to concerning the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day who saw miracle after miracle after miracle that Jesus did. And yet they were unwilling to allow those miracles to lead them to an understanding of God that they were intended to lead them to. 
So they see this feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, people being raised from the dead, lepers being cleansed of their leprosy, people being healed of their diseases. And to them it was just a miracle. Okay, he has the power to do a miracle. But what was the spiritual lesson behind the miracle? Gentlemen, you are looking at the Messiah. You are looking at the Son of God. Have you seen anything like this in your history? Does this man, this God-man, not match the description of the coming Messiah in your scriptures? And the reason that they did not see what all of those miracles added up to in terms of a revelation of Jesus is they refused to see it. I think about there in John chapter 12 Verse 37, and although he, that is Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. They refused to go where the evidence should have taken them, and that is a personal faith in Christ. And so then John writes later and says, a couple of verses later, and said, therefore, in light of their refusal, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart, lest they should turn so that I should heal them. And I have uh, said, I have led you 40 years, Moses said, in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink. God supplied their food needs with manna, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. All those miracles, it wasn't, wasn't God coming along and saying, Hey, look, man, look what I can do with a pair of Levi's. I can make them last 40 years. I tell you, dude, not anybody can do that. It was intended to teach them about His power Teach them about his faithfulness and his love for them. And, and that, that, so their clothes, their sandals, their daily food was a witness to them of the faithfulness of God. Now, we've got to be careful of the same thing today. I'm used to having clothes. I'm used to having shoes. I'm used to having enough to eat. But when we look at the clothes that we put on each day and the shoes that we put on our, on our feet and we sit down and we give thanks to God for the meal, when we give Him thanks for these things in our life, it's an indication that we're allowing these things of God's provision in our life to translate in, into something spiritually in our lives. God, thank You for being so faithful to supply me with another meal. Lord, thank You. I stand in awe of it. Thank you for the clothes I'm about to put on, Lord. And so much we can easily begin to just take for granted these blessings in our life, never take them back to God, and then allow them to have us go deeper in our understanding of the goodness and the love of God uh, toward us. And sometimes that's why when we get to the big crisis that occurs in our life, we doubt the love of God, we doubt the faithfulness of God, because we haven't seen his love and his faithfulness in the smaller things and allowing that to, to do that needed work in, in our lives. And so all of this was a witness of 
of God's faithfulness and was intended to teach them that great lesson about God. And when you came to this place there in Moab, Sihon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan came out against us to battle and we conquered them. And we took their land and, and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, to the Gadites and to the half tribe of Manasseh. So he reminded them of, of God's faithfulness and military victories and he's just saying to them, hey listen, men, women, kiddos, hasn't obedience to God translated into, you know, just uh, blessing after blessing after blessing in our history. And uh, so the, the great lesson, obeying God leads to blessing. And therefore, if we know that great lesson, therefore keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. And so if the idea is that obeying God and following God results in a blessed life, then who in their right mind would abandon him, walk away from him? I mean, life doesn't get any better than that. So he encourages them now, continue to follow him, continue to obey him, and you'll give him the opportunity to continue to prosper you. He said, all of you, so everyone, he's calling them now to make a commitment to this covenant to keep uh, the law of Moses is an expression of their love for God. He said, all of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders, your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the people of Israel, all your little ones uh, and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp, the Gentiles, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water. In other words, this whole thing of obeying God, translating to a life of blessing, it works for everyone. Didn't just work for the priests. Didn't work for people with their PhDs or people that had position because of birth and power and these things. It works for everybody, no matter where we come from in life. Simple obedience to God's Word translates into a blessed life. Isn't that nice? I mean, you come into this world, you live for a while in this world, and you realize this is not... Very fair. My mother, she kind of drilled two things in our head when we were growing up. One was two wrongs don't make a right. That was a good one. The second one that she drilled into our heads was, is an unfair world. I'm about six years old and I'm hearing this all the time. Well, better to hear sooner than later, I guess. But it is. It's an unfair world. And you look and say, hey, who gives everybody an equal shot? At, at having the greatest life, the most intimate relationship with God, to experience the, 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 as fully as we want to the fullness of, of the promises of God, God gives that to us. So this works for everybody, obedience to the Lord, that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God and into His oath which the Lord your God makes with you today, that He may establish you today as a people for himself, and that he may be God to you, just as he has spoken to you, and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so Moses said, listen, just keep obeying him, and it allows God to have the relationship he wants to have with you, and it allows him to bless you the way he wants to bless you.
Isn't that something? Sometimes we think about our disobedience or, and the children of Israel are going to be disobedient and we're tempted to disobedience all the time. We think we are the only ones sometimes that pay a price for our disobedience. God pays a terrible price for our disobedience because he's got to sit on his hands and he's got to hold back the blessings that he is just so wanting to pour into our lives. And I say it every once in a while, but I think it bears repeating. The worst thing you can do to a mom or a dad as a child is to put yourself in a place where they can't bless you the way they want to bless you. Because the life that you're living is one that they realize this will be destructive for them. And it kills them to have to pull back. And it's the same thing in even greater measure as it relates to the Lord. His heart is so big toward us. I make this covenant and this oath, Moses said, not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here today. And so this oath that they're going to make, this covenant with God, they're making it not only on behalf of their generation, but for, on behalf of all the Jews that would follow them. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations by which you passed by and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them wood and stones, silver and gold and you saw all of that idolatry. One of the reasons that God brought them into Egypt was to put them in a safe place so they could go from being a family of 70 a good-sized clan to becoming a nation of two to three million people. But he also brought them into Egypt so they could see up, up close the destructiveness and the vileness and the wickedness that is produced by uh, idolatry, the worship of anything other than the true and living God, the worship of false gods. And they were in Egypt and they watched what the wor- what, I mean, what we worship is very formative in our lives. So they watched as these Egyptians worshipped all of these idols. They watched firsthand what it turned the nation into, what it turned people into, what it turned a society into. So he's saying to them, listen, when, I, when God calls you to not engage in idolatry, it's not like you don't know something about idolatry. You spent 400 years finding out what misery idolatry produces within a, a nation and a people. And so, you know, don't forget the lesson of it. You know better. So he, he warns them that Egypt, one of the intentions of being in Egypt was it was to cure them of idolatry so that, verse 18, there may not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord your God to go and serve the gods of these nations and that you may, and that there may not be among you a root uh, bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so he likens uh, the path of idolatry, uh, and idolatry is basically rebellion against the Lord. He says that it's like uh, bearing bitterness or wormwood. These were bitter plants. He said, you, if you go and you, if you leave the true and living God and you go follow these idols, we have an old saying, don't we? It's going to leave a bitter taste in your mouth. You know, when we didn't know the Lord, We're just out there just being stupid because stupid is what we were. We didn't know any better. That's one thing. Is another thing 
to walk with God. It's another thing to have a history with God and then go back out there into that mess and play around with it. That's it. You don't even know that you're drinking bitterness before you come to the, know the Lord because you don't have any basis of comparison. To go back out there and try it again, I'm, if, if I ever backslide, I'm not thinking about it. And I ever go back into that world, you can just say, that's one of the stupidest men I've ever met in my life. And be sure that if I ever went back out in that world, every day I'd be drinking bitterness. It'd be just a bitter taste in my mouth. And it's the truth for everyone. And, and so the Lord said, listen, you, re, you rebel against me is going to be bitter in your mouth and you're going to force me to unleash a, a bitter punishment against you. And so, it, and so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard could be included uh, with the sober. So now he talks about how idolatry gets started in a nation. And the children of Israel, they are going to go headlong. It's going to take them a thousand years. This is about 500 B.C. or so, and, uh, uh, the, uh, or, or 1500 B.C., and in about a thousand years later, they're going to go headlong in, into, uh, into idolatry. Ultimately, the northern kingdom of Israel will be taken captive by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom of Judah by the Babylonians for their idolatry. You say, and so we see it at the end. We get into, you know, First uh, uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And we say, wow! And, and look at the whole nations and idolatry. God's forced to, you know, run them off and 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 do a uh, de-exodus. I mean, take, he's got a exodus from the land into captivity. Where in the world does that start? Starts with one guy. How would you like to be that guy? And here's the guy's attitude. He hears Moses delivering the Word of God, these five sermons on, on the importance of obedience. And he thinks to himself, I don't think that's true. In fact, as I look around the world, I don't think that obeying God or disobeying God translates to, into any different quality of life, period. They all seem to have about the same amount of stuff and about the same amount of happiness and the same amount of enjoyment in life. I just don't believe that. I don't believe what God is saying about the importance of, of obedience. Or that kind of person says, I'm different. Everybody else needs to obey. But you know, I'm smarter than the average bear. And I know how to just disobey enough of God's Word and, and, uh, and then obey just enough of it so I can go under the radar and it'll just be in my heart that I don't agree with God's Word and that I don't want to keep it. And it won't go beyond my heart and, and it won't influence my family, which will then influence the neighborhood, which will then influence the city, that will then influence the nation. Incredible. Maybe one day we'll be uh, someplace. <laughs> I don't know if it'll happen in heaven or whatever. But wouldn't it be something... If God uh, one day said, let me show you a slide of the guy that did just this. Took a thousand years, but that's the guy that started it. And so often when a person has this kind of secret attitude in their heart, you can't, we can't keep anything in our heart except it translates into action sooner or later. 
And so this person has it in his heart and he thinks, well, I don't believe any of that and I'm going to kind of live however I want to live. I'll just do it in secret. And nobody will know. God says, I'll know. And And a person who is living a secret life of idolatry, God says, that's as easy for me to pick that person out as it is to pick a drunk out among a bunch of sober people. You got a big crowd, you got 50 people here, and you got somebody that's just stone cold drunk. How hard is it to pick them out? It's effortless to pick them out. So God looks at all of humanity and says, Oh man, that guy's good. He can really keep that deception in his heart. I don't know which one of these people it is. I hope he tips his hand to me. Sorry about the gambling illustration, but I was raised by two gamblers. But anyway, that's another story. That's my excuse tonight. But God says, I see all of this stuff. It's no secret to me. So he warns against the person... And and what he's saying among the nation of Israel is, listen, you have a personal responsibility to be an influence for holiness among this nation. In the same way, every single one of us as Christians has a responsibility to be an influence for holiness in this local church, or in any local church that I attend, or in the body of Christ as a whole. The Bible says when Paul in First uh, Corinthians chapter five, and they they were just allowing this man that was sleeping with his stepmother and in the church and looking like nothing was, uh, they weren't going to deal with it. And look at how broad-minded we are as Christians and everything. And Paul said, "Get him out. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He'll destroy that church if you don't deal with this thing." And so the importance of it, the importance here of. Uh, 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 of the Lord saying of the danger of even one person turning because that one person, he'll affect his wife, he'll affect the kids, then the school's affected, and then we're off and running. And then he talks about where it leads. And the Lord would not spare him, for when, then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man. And every curse that is written in this book We read them last week. Any of you interested in partaking in them? Not me, thank you. And every curse that is written in this book would settle on him. That's settle. Poof! Right? And the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. The guy says, oh, it doesn't matter whether you obey God or not. God's just a big talker. He doesn't back it up. God says, I'll back it up. And he does. You look at anybody out there in the world... I'm not trying to pick on people. I've lived in the world and I've lived in the church. And and this is much better. But sometimes, you know, with the TV and the magazines and the whole this and the whole that, and you look out there and you can look at the life that some of these people are living and, and the whole idea is to get us to smack our lips. They are not enjoying life in the way that you and I enjoy life. And there isn't a backslider in the world that's having fun out there. If you, if, you, if you value a good night's sleep, if you value peace with God, if you value being able to look at the future with confidence and with hope, they don't possess those things. And so God makes sure that nobody's getting away with anything. Sometimes we think, oh, they're getting away with it. Be not deceived. God is not mocked, the Bible says. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. God knows how to do things privately, quietly, that we don't know anything about. Now, he wants to bring people back as he does that to them, as we'll get into in chapter 30 next month.
No, just kidding. We're going to get there. And the Lord would separate, verse 21, him from all of the tribes of Israel for adversity according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law. God says, I'll take care of it quietly. Don't think anybody's getting away with anything. So that, and here's the danger that that kind of a person represents to the larger uh, children of Israel and even in the body of Christ, is that it, they'll follow that idolatry and then it'll lead to judgment on the nation of Israel, which it did. So that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land would say, when they see the plagues of that land and the sickness which the Lord has laid on it, the whole land, speaking of Israel, and talking about uh, Israel following the conquest by the Babylonians, again a thousand years later, the conquest of, uh, by the Babylonians. Remember, the, the children of Israel were so stubborn against the Babylonians. I forget, I think it was three times Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this was like the grand poobah for you Flintstones people of, of ancient history. He had power, he had wealth. Israel rebelled against him and he had to come back and conquer Judah three times. By the time he came back the third time, he had had it up to here. And he didn't leave anything in that land. No wealth. He left a few poor people to manage the orchards and that kind of a thing. He took everything out of there and it looked like they had dropped uh, nuclear bombs on the place. So he's talking about where that that idolatry would lead to. The whole land is brimstone, salt and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there. It's like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in His anger and His wrath. And this destruction upon Israel that would ultimately come upon them because of idolatry, it would produce, it would become a source of conversation for the, the Gentile nations. They would look at it and go, wow, why does, has the Lord done this to this land? What does the heat of this great anger mean? I mean, they look over at Israel and say, wow, what did they do to their God? And then the people would say, and here's the reasons. Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Reason number one, pure, willful disobedience to God's word. And then number two, verse 36, four, that's a reason word, for they went and served other gods, talking about idolatry, and worshipped them, gods that they did not know and that he had not given to them, And so those were the reasons, the warning about what would come uh, into their future and, uh, and, and, you know, what people would be looking at, the questions that they would have about it. Lord, warn them ahead of time. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. At least it should be. And then the anger of the Lord was aroused against this land to bring on it every curse that is written in this book. And remember, God had pronounced curses not only on people that disobeyed, but upon the land. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger, in wrath, and in great indignation and cast them into another land as it is this day. I mean, you just think about that. I mean, here God went through so much to deliver them out of 
of Egypt, all of the plagues, all the everything to get them into the land. God did so much work. And here you have a reverse exodus going on because of idolatry and disobedience. It's just very, very heartbreaking, isn't it? It's a great warning to us and an important one. God said, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so when he says the secret things of the lo- belong to the Lord our God, he's just saying that there are, uh, we don't need to know uh, all of the details about you know, the, the judgment that would come upon them, when it would happen, how it would happen, what nations would God use to, to do that and kind of, that kind of thing. Moses just says to them, all they really needed to know uh, was obey the Lord and, and love Him and worship Him alone. And if you do that, then you don't have to know about all the secrets or all the details of his coming judgment. And so life is just real simple, he said. It, it, it just, just obey the Lord. All you need to know about all of this is obey the Lord, and you don't have to worry about all the details of, of judgment. All of that can be left to the Lord. In fact, you don't have to worry about his judgment at all. Just concentrate on your responsibility before God, and that is to obey Him. And then instead of trying to figure out all the who, why's, what, where, and all these kind of things and hows of, of God's judgment, it's kind of like the professing Christian who is living a life of just open, willful disobedience to God's Word. He's worshiping all the things that the, the world worships, and yet he spends his whole life trying to figure out the mysteries of God's Word. Spends his whole life trying to, you know, reconcile God's sovereignty and man's free moral agency. He's living a life of complete wickedness, but he wants to know the meaning of every single symbol in the book of Revelation. So he's, he's trying to know all of this knowledge, all of these secrets, all of this stuff, everything but the most obvious thing right before his eyes, and that is just obey God and live for him, and you won't have to worry about all these other things. Instead of just focusing on watching, waiting, working, being ready for the Lord at the time of the rapture, then you don't got to worry about the judgment. That's bad English. I did it on purpose. So there's a lot of things that we don't know, but Moses is saying we know enough to obey God. Chapter 30. Now, it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you. And so he's he's just letting them know that it's history in advance. He's prophesying to them that they will disobey, they will apostatize, this will be their future. The blessing and the curse which I have set before you. You're going to know the blessings. You're also going to know the cursings. And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. So he's saying he, they didn't know that Babylon would be the nation that would conquer them. And, and so he said, is in essence saying that one day when you end up in the land of Babylon and you're just kind of sitting there thinking in bondage one day, And it comes into your mind 
Wow. I remember how good life was when we obeyed God. And, and that comes to a person's mind sooner or later, the backslidden state. And, and so he says, when you're there and that hits you, you remember how good it was when you walked with me and you return, step number two, to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all of your heart, with all of your soul. This is known as repentance. To repent is interesting. We think so often that repentance means uh, to uh, have a, a change of direction in life. It is that, but it's more than that. Repentance literally means, in the New Testament definition of it, it means to have a change of mind that then produces a change of direction. A change of mind that changes my decision making in life. So he's saying when you're in Babylon one day and you have a change of mind about your decision making and you say, I remember how good it was when I used to walk with God and I want to change my direction in life now. That's what repentance is. And, and repentance is more than um, being uh, sorry about my decision making. It's, it's more than even admitting that my decision making is wrong. It's a decision that I make. To rec it, it can include all that, recognizes all that, but the day comes where I say, I am going to change how I see things I'm going to change my idea about where I'm going to go in life and then I'm going to have that translate into the daily of my life. And that's what repentance is. So that's what he's talking about. You return, returning to God, that would be a mark of true repentance. Uh, obeying God, a mark of true repentance. Loving God in, 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 with all your heart and all your soul. These would be evidences of someone who is truly repenting. So they're not only saying, boy, I, I hate the... I hate where I am in life. It's where they say, I hate where I am in life, and I'm going to change my decision-making in life, and I'm going to begin to obey God once again. He said, if you do that, this is what it will allow the Lord to do in your life. That the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you. Now you put yourself in the, in the place of that nation or in the place of a person like that. And what you wonder when you really blow it big time is you wonder, do I have a future and a hope? Does he care about me anymore? Is there anything I can do from this day forward? If, or have I just the die been cast and this is what I'm going to be and have to live with for the rest of my life? Does God care about me anymore? Does he love me anymore? And Moses tells the children of Israel that when you change your mind about where your decision-making, sinful decision-making, has led you, and you decide, I want to go back and walk with God, you'll find that God is waiting there for you. We talk about the, um, uh, the, 
parable of the prodigal son. Great example in the New Testament, isn't it? He's out there. He had a change of mind, didn't he? Listen, when you are longing to eat what you're feeding to the pigs, that's getting pretty low. And he said to himself, man, I had it good at home. I didn't know how good I had it at home with dad. I'm going to change the direction that I'm going in life. I'm going to change my relationship with my father. I'm going to go back home and I'll take any position he's willing to give me as long as I'm right in right relationship with him and back in the family. That's all he wanted. And the Lord killed the fatted calf or the master did and the whole thing. And he's just waiting for, the, for just repentance to allow him to pour his father's heart out on him. God is amazing how much he loves us. I don't understand it. Sometimes I think he loves me the way with the, the, the very severe limitations in the natural with which I would love another person. Is it, no more than three strikes you're out. But God is great love for us. And so when you come back from the captivity and, and he'll have compassion on you, gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. No matter how far out there you got, no matter what bondage you put yourself in, no matter how strong the powers of Babylon, no matter how strong the powers of the demonic, whatever that you've put yourself in, going back out into that mess, you turn back to me, and I've got the love and the power to bring you back to the blessings of the life of obedience. This is wonderful, wonderful stuff. And if any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from even there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will bring you. And then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your father pos fathers possessed, and you, uh, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. He says, just give me a chance to bless you once again. And, uh, and I will be glad to do it. And the Lord your, uh, your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So God said concerning the Jews that when you come back from your Babylonian captivity, he said, I'm going to reward your repentance by blessing you with a new heart and a new desire to no longer live for the flesh, but instead to live for me, to live for the Lord, to, to, to obey the Lord. The near fulfillment, that, this prophecy in verse 6 has what is known as a near fulfillment. Many of God's prophecies in the Old Testament have a near fulfillment, an immediate fulfillment. They have a far fulfillment. Sometimes they have dual fulfillments. The immediate fulfillment or the near fulfillment of this is that, is that uh, when they did come back into the land following their ba Babylonian captivity, the nation of Israel or the Jewish people were forever cured of idolatry. Now they're not walking with God today. And they've rejected Christ as Jesus as their Messiah. So there's some real problems there. But the nation is not given over to idolatry to this day. The Babylonian captivity cured them of that. The greatest fulfillment of verse 6 is, is, in, in, uh, in, is yet future. 
happens at Jesus' second coming when the Jews do recognize Jesus as their Messiah following the great tribulation and then he will establish uh, his millennial kingdom, his thousand year reign uh, centered there in Jerusalem. The Spirit will come upon them and uh, they will have a love for God that is greater than a love for anything else. And also the Lord your God... uh, will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you, and you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments which I command you today. So the Lord says, when you come back to me, I can go back to what I like doing. And that is, instead of whooping up on you, I want to whoop your enemies. And he just speaks to him and says, when you do this, I'm going to have to put my entire attention on disciplining you. And instead of protecting you from your enemies, which is what he he wanted to do. So the disobedience really robbed them in two ways. It it robbed them of God's blessing. They, They were disciplined by God, but it made them very vulnerable to their enemies. I'll tell you, I I don't know how much spiritual warfare any of us go through in this room. I know that any of us that walk with the Lord, there's plenty of spiritual warfare to go around. So I don't know how to measure it, whether how much you have, how much I have, how much whatever. I don't need to do that. All I know is I don't want any more than I'm supposed to have. I mean, the, the spiritual warfare that I experience trying to be obedient to God is enough. I don't want to go out there and live a life of disobedience and then to be laid wide open to my enemies and what he might want to try to do to me. So it's, it's, it's miserable all the way around. And the Lord wanted to encourage them. I'll come back and be the defense that I've always wanted uh, to be to you. And the Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase uh, of your livestock, and in the presence of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. And so he's just saying, all those blessings that I said I would do and for you, your families, your produce, the lives, all that stuff, I'm just waiting to do it again, you know, when when you turn back. And and then I like that for the Lord again, uh, will again rejoice over you for good. In other words, he 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 loves he he loved the day they returned to him. You think God would say, "Well, all right, I'll give you cattle again, and I'll give you kids again," but I'll tell you something: you're in a doghouse for a long time, Buckaroo. Don't think I'm happy about this. Ever remember being a kid, and mom or dad was upset with you for a couple of days? Maybe you weren't that kind of kid. how miserable was the house when someone was just upset with you way beyond the discipline it was pretty miserable so the Lord doesn't do that he would rejoice to do good to them again if you obey 
the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law and if you turn so that obedience if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and so these beautiful marks of repentance and you don't have to go into Babylonian captivity to appreciate these truths. You just have to be stupid for an hour and a half to be thankful to know that this is the God that we serve. And we're in a better covenant in the blood of Christ with a better teacher living inside of us, the person of the Holy Spirit, to say, now let's learn what happened there. And let's not go back there ever again. Yes, sir. That's how I want to live. So, it, 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 we can all relate to this on some level or another. For this commandment, which I command uh, to you uh, today, is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it uh, uh, beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. What Moses is saying here in all of this is that everything he's saying to them is not complicated it's not hard to understand anyone can understand it even a child can understand it obedience leads to blessing disobedience leads to judgment and cursing now that's just real I like simple I remember taking I think it was geometry. God bless you accountants. God bless you math majors. You have my utmost respect. I hated math all of my life. Now, for those of you, don't you go home and say to your parents, Pastor hated math too. I worked hard at math and I got A's and B's in it, but it was really tough. Those postulates... Those theorems, don't give me theories about math that you can't prove 100%. Don't be messing with my mind that way because I like to prove things all the way out. You're messing with me on this. So I like things to be really, really simple. And God says to them that he's here, Moses speaks to him and says, this is so simple, so straightforward, so clear, anyone can understand it. The secret to a blessed life, he says there in, in verse 12, you don't have to ascend into heaven to learn some kind of uh, super duper secret to, to enjoy it. It's not something that's, you know, uh, super mysterious to understand. I like it in verse 13. He talks about the fact that you don't have to cross the sea. You don't have to go halfway around the world, cross the, the seven seas and, and, uh, and in order to go to some, you know, mountain 
mountain in Tibet and find a guru in some cave or sitting at the top. It's the, you know, the secret to a blessed life isn't you know, far, far away uh, from you. It's, 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 it's just simple. It, it's right there. I remember when I was a kid, one of the first movies I ever saw as a, as a kid when I was probably about eight years old was Jason and the Argonauts. The old version, not the new version, the old version of it, black and white. And they went out to try and find the golden fleece. And they dealt with the Cyclops and Neptune, and they dealt with that gigantic metals you know, statue thing, gigantic thing that when they began to mess with it, it turned to life. As a kid, I'm terrified. And they took the teeth and the molars of some kind of a thing and put them in the ground and these skeletons came up, began to fight against them and all of this in order to get that golden fleece. It always reminds me of this in this passage. And they're trying to get the secret of the golden fleece. The secret of a blessed life. You don't have to do all that. You don't even have to watch the movie. <laughs> so it, 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 there was, you didn't have to do any hardship or anything like that. He said, verse 14, the word was near them, in their mouth, and in their heart. The message. It was the message that Moses had planted in their heart about obedience and disobedience. It was so simple that a child could have repeated it back to Moses. So no one could plead ignorance. You know, how, how is it again that you live a blessed life? How is it that this all happens? I think about, you know, because, and the Apostle Paul takes this passage, and because the Old Testament scriptures are all a type or a picture of Christ, he gives this passage its highest application concerning the gospel and how to be saved. The way to be saved, you don't have to climb up into heaven through religious works or these kind of things to try and find out the secret of how a person be saved and forgiven, have everlasting life. You don't have to cross the seven seas to discover that. All you have to do is have someone share the gospel with you. And when they share the gospel with you, how it is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and he was buried. And he rose again on the third day. And if you'll put your faith or your trust in him as your Savior, that you will have everlasting life given to you by God as a gift from God. And when a person speaks that gospel to another person, now the way to be saved is in their heart. It's as close, salvation is close as repeating the prayer that the person is willing to lead a person in to invite Jesus into their heart. It's not a big mystery on how to be saved. God th keeps things real simple for us. We don't have to go endure great difficulty, great hardship, travel great distances, and then wonder, is it possible for me, any of those kinds of things. Salvation is as close as the gospel that's been delivered into our ears and into our hearts and then simply repeating that back to the Lord. It's beautiful. And Paul's application of it by the Holy Spirit. Beautiful insight uh, into the gospel. For this commandment, 
which I command you today. Amazing. Um, I'm still in verse 11. We've got to make headway, don't we? Verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Now, how easy is that choice for you? Do we have any death or evil? Just a quick show of hands here. You say, yes, I'll take the death and evil side of that thing. Just checking. It's a, you never know who walks in. It's just so simple and clear. There's just two paths here, ladies and gentlemen, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. He's saying it every way He knows how. Just obey God. He knows He's going to die. He's not going to leave them in the land. Obey God and you're going to be all right. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursings. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So he's just, he, he is doing everything but putting them in a headlock and forcing them. I mean, you can feel Moses' passion here. He, what he feels for these people. And, and, and you say, how can a preacher, how can a teacher repeat himself over and over and over like that and be so impassioned uh, about it? it, it it's, it's because he, he feels it. It's a, it's a part of him. And he, he knows that they're not going to obey the Word of God. And, and he so wants to get inside of their skin and do the one thing we can never do for another person, and that is make their decisions for them. So he does everything short of that. What parent doesn't know something about this? What authority figure in life doesn't know something about this? Where you look and you say, I have all of this, I can warn, I can warn, I can warn, and I can warn, but I can't get inside of them and make their decisions for them. And, and, and he wants to do everything short of that uh, in, in their lives. And it's his, his heart, his desire that they would be blessed. And that you may love the Lord your God and that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. And that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. We'll stop there tonight. Our decisions in life are so important.